Osiris. What's up? This is Ryan Stasek from Humphreys McGee. This podcast is part of the Osiris podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Osiris works in partnership with Relics Magazine. Osiris. Welcome in to episode 66 of The Bluest Tape. I'm Harvey Couch, alongside... Jeff Colas. And thanks for joining us as we take our weekly journey through the live catalog of Widespread Panic. Um, Jeff, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. You've had a lot more excitement in your world than I've had in mine. Uh, oh, gosh. Not, not, well, some good excitement. You saw some shows again this past week, but yeah. we were without power for, what, 52 hours, you said? 52 hours yes um and that's no fun especially when you got a uh a, a two-year-old and a five-year-old and um it would have been seems like it might have been better during the week we would have at least been out of the house a little bit but it basically started from friday afternoon and went through sunday night um and so yeah no it's i'm very happy that the power is back so all you folks at home with electricity just you know you take it for granted. <laughs> you flip that switch, the lights come on, and the air conditioning works, and the you know your phones charge. And here's another thing that happens when the electricity goes out. Um, obviously, the internet goes out too, which is you know something people use quite a bit of. And so then, at least you know, I live out here in the boonies. We have you know we have like one cell tower, and it's normally totally fine, but. Um, yeah, when everybody's on it at the same time, I mean, it was like, it was just basically worse than dial up all weekend trying to just get anything out. You could basically text and phone calls worked for the most part, but like, don't try to like um, resolve a web page or anything like that. So, it, uh, I don't know. I mean, my my son is a likes screen time, and so. Uh, I would imagine that if your children, or at least your older son, if he watches anything, he probably got a little squirrely. Yeah, we don't do a whole lot of screen time, but yeah, that is something that we do on the weekends sometimes. And so we did actually. Uh, there's an iPad that he uses when we travel and stuff, and there was hard stuff downloaded and ready. We to had go. some we had some stuff downloaded, but unfortunately, had not charged it since our last trip, and so it was at like eleven percent. And so we used it the first night, and then. The next day, when we went out to breakfast, we brought it in the car, <laughs> pl- plugged it in to charge it, and uh, got you know got squeezed another fifteen percent out of it while we were driving around, and then that that got us through Saturday. So, yeah, I hope not to have to do that again for a while. But um, enough about my adventures. I did. I, I got to see some good music. I went uh, on Sunday night. Went and saw the Wheels of Soul tour which this year is the Tedeschi Trucks Band, supported by the Drive-By Truckers and Marcus King Band. Um, and it was quite enjoyable. I mean, they had a great crowd. They were playing at the the, the little PNC Pavilion, which is attached to Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati. And I don't know, it probably holds 4,000 maybe. Um, and it was, it was pretty much sold out. So um, 
And unlike a lot of times when you go see Tedeschi trucks, I think that the truckers and Marcus King brought the average age of the crowd down a little bit. I think generally we would probably have been some of the youngest people there <laughs> for, for Tedeschi trucks, but uh, there were more there were more folks our age. So uh, yeah, it was fun. And then uh, last week saw Jason Isbell, who's always just fantastic. And uh, his golden messenger was opening up and they were really good too. So um nice. Jason tours all the time and it seems like he comes through here twice a year and you know, it doesn't vary the set list all all that much. And so I usually am like, you know, do you really want to go see, you know, it's like pretty much the same thing. It's like every time I go, every time I'm just like, God, dude, it's just awesome. Like, even if you know exactly what the set list is going to be, um, it's just, uh, he's just amazing. I'm a big fan. Yeah, it's it's uh so pr- so proud of little Jason Isbell. Yeah, right. Yeah, considering where you know, I'm sure there are a bunch of people listening who have drunk Jason Isbell stories, but you know, seen him when he was threatening to wrap mic stands around people's heads and uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's just play. Saw him play in Madison a bunch of times for hardly anybody and looked like it was going to be a struggle for him for a long time. And first record came out on new West and did really well. And then the second two just kind of fizzled and then really picked up steam. So good for him winning awards and all kinds of things. My favorite. um, And you know, this is obviously you don't tune in to listen to us talk about Jason Isbell, but my favorite Jason Isbell story is um, he was on CBS Sunday morning. Uh, They did a feature on him. I think probably after Southeastern came out and um, I love that show, by the way, I don't know if we've had that conversation or not, but they, um, they had, they had a conversation with him and sort of, you know, talking about his story and how he'd gotten clean and, and he married, you know, Amanda Shires. I can't remember if they, she was pregnant or not, but um, they were talking about how basically, you know, Amanda was like, if you want help, then we're going to get help. And if you don't, and you, you know, keep running away from it. I don't want to be with somebody that's going to be a coward, you know. The next week, he was in rehab and sent notes to Amanda every day. Imagine who you think I would be if I never took another drink, he wrote. I sure hope you're still mine when you get this letter. If not, call me up. I'm sure I'll be waiting for you somewhere. They were charming letters. (laughs) <laughs> I write a good letter, Anthony. I write a good letter. Somehow I believe that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, no, I had a good week as far as music goes, just not so much on the uh, the utility standpoint. But um, enough about that. Uh, we have um, really awesome guests that I want to get to. Um, but if it's first time listening, first time listening, um, there's a couple of things to just sort of get out of the way, you know, sort of standards of our of our show jeff are are you drinking anything tonight uh i think the same bourbon i was drinking last time oh mixing it up no how about you uh i am drinking a uh it's called a cross flow by uh, outer range it is an ipa that my good buddy ed from colorado sent me and um it was brewed in collaboration with casey brewing company from glenwood springs colorado Outer Range is from Frisco, and uh, it is fantastic. So I'm enjoying that. And um, sounds super dank. It is so dank. I mean, it looks literally looks like a glass of grapefruit juice. Um, 
so and then did you you have anything you want to you were telling me right before we got on that you're you there's a new uh, show new season of a show that you like you're going to tell the folks yeah about. new season of last last chance you dropped on netflix new school this year independence community college and in independence kansas um if you like the first two seasons, you'll like this season. If you like seeing a-hole coaches scream at uh, 19-year-olds, um, you'll like this season. Um, the one thing that I do like about this guy, his name's Jason Brown. He's a real, he's something else, is that he's not putting on any airs. He just really is who he is. So he's going to swear at you at practice. He's going to swear at you in the game. He's going to swear at you if you're a coach. He's going to swear at you if you're a ref. He's going to swear at you if you're a player. He might even threaten bodily harm if you're one of the three, um, which happens, I believe, in episode four. So it um, one of the things that always bugged me about the first two seasons with Buddy Stevens at East Mississippi was Buddy was a real jerk. and But they played it off like, oh, he's a family man. Oh, he goes to church. Oh, he has a spiritual advisor. But at his core, he's still a a-hole football coach. This guy is just I mean, no pretenses, no pretenses. He talks about how many Cadillacs he has. He talks about his beach house. He smokes giant cigars. He sits in hot tubs like I mean, he's just he is something else. So but it's very enjoyable because he's just he is what he is. It's all out in front. Um, it is sort of <laughs> I will say that there's a very funny part in episode four where they're uh the team is struggling with their grades and he's berating them about their grades and then there's a very humorous passage about one player failing an art class that made really really laugh this morning so anyway highly recommend it last chance you season three um my my recommendation this week is uh electricity and so I'm not sure if we're like Thomas Edison or uh, Nikola Tesla, Tesla, whoever's responsible for it. I am a huge fan. And if you haven't tried it out, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's just, you, you know, with, you know, you, you, you recommend the album high voltage by ACDC or something like that. And then you, you know, you'll come, comes full circle with your, there you go. your Edison and your Volta or uh, Edison yeah. and your Tesla. Sorry. Or yeah, no, or I could just do like, you know, Tesla five man acoustic jam. That'd be... <laughs> Sign never uh, not be played on the radio. That is just, it's going to be, and I think we have our outro music for this week. So that's good too. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, thanks for, um, for hanging with us through that. Um, so we had a, a, a very special guest that was uh, willing to come on and chat with us this week, and that is Sam Holt, who was uh, a fan of Widespread Panics and then became a crew member and then uh, eventually, uh, essentially, the lead guitarist for about two weeks in the summer of 2006. And uh, he's still playing around, and um, he's got two shows scheduled for Labor Day weekend in Nashville uh, after shows from the Panic um, after the panic shows on Friday and Saturday, he's playing, uh, at the exit Inn in Nashville. So definitely go down and check that out. Um, and so he was super gracious to spend some time with us. And, uh, you know, what I told him was going to be about an hour. I think we ended up being like two. <laughs> and, um, so we were going to just do an episode, but I, I think it makes sense to split it up into two. And so, um, so we're going to do uh, sort of the first half of our conversation this week, and then um, 
we'll take a week off and then come back again uh, in a couple of weeks and have the second part of our conversation with him. Um, and uh, it was really cool to be able to not only like kind of geek out with him as a fan, but then also be able to ask him sort of inside baseball questions about being involved in the production and stuff. It was just, it's so, it's so cool to be able to, to hit both angles with him. Yeah. I mean, he saw what he saw the band for the first time in what, 89, I think you said. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that's, so he's, he's been there for almost 30 years, been around and around the band and tape shows and has some early stories about, you know, taping the band, meeting the band in that way. And just, and then again, sort of living the, living the dream that I'm sure so many folks who go see, go, go see widespread band or any band really. Um, but actually substantively being part of the band and not just being some guy that gets pulled out of the stage to play drums for Keith Moon because he passed out. Right. I mean, it's just like an actual member of the band. And so it's such a cool story and happy for Sam that he was able to do that. And it, and it was exciting to talk about some of the cool stuff that he's been doing the last few years and what he's got coming up too. Yeah. So, um, it's sort of in coordination with this release of the new, uh, archive release that Watchbird Panic did the 11th archive release, uh, multi-track, um, from the Knoxville show in uh, September 28th, 1995. Have you gotten a chance to listen to the full show since it's come out? It's been out about, I guess about not quite a week. No, I have not. And I highly recommend doing so. It is, so good. We play a couple tracks from it uh, during our conversation, and um, you'll get a little bit of a taste. But um, to listen to, uh, you know, we're not distributing this podcast in a in a lossless format or anything. So uh, to get the full the full feel, definitely, um, you know, go to uh, I think it's livewidespreadpanic.com dot com and buy it, and um, that'll. Um, you know, I think help ensure that they'll continue these projects. And you know, I'm, I think we need to start a, uh, uh, you know, some kind of petition to to turn this this archive series into a Sam's picks because I'm 100 percent behind his first choice, and I hope that he'll continue to get that opportunity. But um, so um, so, anything, do you have anything else before we uh, we get to it? Nope, let's get to it. Let's, we got we got a long episode ahead of us. <laughs> uh, not not to scare anybody off. Hang in. There's, I think there's a, a lot of really good stuff, and uh, I know that Ted Rockwell dropped his interview. I don't know if you got a chance to read that. He did one with Sam uh, a while back, and and put the text of it out there. And um, you know, I think we cover a little bit of the same ground, but I think we definitely uh, you know touched on a lot of different things that that Ted didn't. So check out Ted's interview when you're done with this. To, if you haven't, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, this is our conversation with Sam Holt. All right. We're joined now by Sam Holt of the Sam Holt band. Sam, thanks for taking the time. And it's my pleasure. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you because I feel like you have a, uh, a singularly unique view, uh, into this band from your history, starting as a, as a fan and then as a, as a taper and then, as a crew member and then as a sometimes guest and then as you know for about two weeks you were the lead guitarist um and so i think you have a you know a perspective that nobody else does so i'm really excited to to get into some of that with you cool 
Um, so let's just like if let's just start sort of at the beginning. What what was your first exposure to the band? How and when and and how did that go down? I was a uh, was a student at Ole Miss, and in the fall of '89, they were playing a bar called the Oxford Alley in Oxford, Mississippi. I can't remember who told me to go. I'd kind of heard of them, and I went there. There's probably like 25 people there, maybe 50. And I didn't really, I tried to pay attention, but, you know, I was young and didn't really know what was going on. What I do recall from that night is people kept yelling bar stools. And I was like, what's what's going on? Are they tired? Do they need something to sit on up there? Are they, they need to relax? I don't need to sit down for a minute. So that's that was my first experience. And, you know, it really, really didn't hit me too hard. And then about i guess probably a couple months later my buddy who was named clark cowan who was a student at uga said hey man we you've got to see them again there's something to this so we went and saw saw the show that was uh december 1st 89 center stage in atlanta colonel bruce and aru and after that night i was just something happened it was uh, I knew something was going on there and really kind of put me on the path. I, I really wanted something to do with music. I didn't what, but I knew there was more than meets the eye with this whole deal. That was my first exposure to. And so that was, you know, I guess that that's what pulled you in. And then you're pretty much reef full blast after that. I mean, did you go see him a lot in 90 or? Yeah, um, yeah. My buddy and I. So we became, we got we saw him a bunch in 1990. They were playing bars and around the South a lot. That's where we saw him. And uh, the first time we recorded a show was uh, I believe June 26 at the Georgia Theater. They did two nights. It's the summer in Athens. Really wasn't that many people there. Maybe a hundred people each night. And uh, the second night, we brought a couple of short SM58s on two different stands. <laughs> and Peter Jackson, who who's, has a history with the band also, we, we went to high school together. His dad's uh, cassette deck, we had to ask whoever was at the soundboard if we could have power to plug this thing in. And we recorded that show, and somehow one cassette exists of it still. And I actually gave it to Ted Rockwell a year ago. I don't, I don't know when I actually, but I think it has made it to Panic Stream at this point. And uh, so that was, that was, you know, once we got the taping bug, me and my buddy Ricky Supan uh, eventually got some better mics and a DAT machine. And we would just go and record any chance we could get. We were really, really crazy about doing that for several years, early 90s. And then were you, um, was there a time when you sort of, when, when did you start working with the band? So, I mean, was there a time when you, you weren't following them around or, or taping as much? Or is it pretty much, how was that transition for you? Well, I, I started, uh, my first my first show that actually working was, uh, June of 2000 in Kansas City. I don't remember the date. But I was huge into taping 
you know, until probably 96, 97, and then went back to go to school at MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, and was going to school for audio engineering. Saw him a couple times a year in like 98, 99, and maybe once in the spring of 2000, but wasn't really taping anymore. My mate, his name Chris Raybold at the time, we were both going to MTSU. He had worked for Panic before as kind of a helper in the merch area on a couple tours. And Peter Jackson, who I'd mentioned before, he was the production manager Panic at that point, and he was going to leave. He had called Chris to come in and take his place because Chris had been doing stuff in Nashville with bands, mixing, audio engineer, production managing. And Chris went and started working for them in the spring of 2000. And in the summer, by the beginning of the summer of 2000, um, he called me and said, hey, we, they need a guitar tech out here. Do you think you can do it? And I literally was on a plane the next day to Kansas City. That's how that started. We're both huge. I think we both agree that probably 96 is our favorite year, just start to finish. Oh. Um, are you are you on this? Are you on the boat with us on that? <laughs> oh, well, I don't think it's. Man, I love 96. Uh, some of the best shows I saw were in 96. I don't know if I can put say this one's the best, or but yeah. I, I hear coming from where you really like it most do you do you have any shows either that you that you you know went to and tape or that you you know heard especially sort of back then that st- still stick out to you is i, I want to get into you know we're going to talk about the the release um the the knoxville 95 show but are there other ones that that stick out oh sure um halloween 1990 was was off the charts hmm. Uh, we didn't have very good microphones at that point, but we did have a really good cassette, portable cassette recorder, a Sony D5. We had some Shure SM57 mics, which if anyone knows that kind of mic, it's really not effective for taping, but it, it did the job that night. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and there's so many, 1030 and 103192 at the Georgia Theater. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. The PA sounded great. Those audience tapes turned out spectacular um 96 i remember um grand junction 61096 mm-hmm. that we went and taped that one that was a really good one and then there's a show like a few days later in dallas at the bronco bowl that was insane like i don't think they stopped in the second set it was one of those where they didn't really finish songs like even like love tractor and jack they just instead of stopping they would just keep going and it was it was after that show pretty well um there's a show at man ripers in 95 that was excellent the day before that and on making birthday and i could probably keep going but. <laughs> no i was just curious which one sort of came off the top of your head those are the ones but man i'm sure i'm leaving stuff out um Oh, my favorite show ever is February the 8th, 1991 at uh, the center stage. It was the last time they played the center stage. And there's actually a a recording of that. We recorded it that night, but a guy named Hardy Ross had better 
better mics than we did at that time. He had an AKG stereo mic, and uh, that, I believe that's on Panic Stream. And man, there's that night. I was like, that, I saw the light. You know, I, that was. I still think about that show and listen to that show. It was Dude. something happened to me that night. There's a uh, like two nights before in Knoxville to Bijou. There's tapes of that, yes. and that's a fantastic show too. I agree, man. That's a really exciting time. It's right before T Live. It's got in you know in the band, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just raw as shit. You know, <laughs> just yeah, I love that. Love that stuff. Um, Sam, you know one of the things we always, you know like to talk about is uh you know war stories from the taper section so do you i mean what was the taper what was the taping scene like back in 1991 how many of you were around and how many of you were doing it and and you need to sort of i mean it's right at the beginning of the formation of a community that obviously has grew exponentially um over the course of the next decade yeah um there weren't a lot there was there was Hardy Ross, and he lived in Nashville. There was Richard Kerlopian, who was starting to come around. He was from Columbia, South Carolina. He he actually ended up doing merch for them for mm-hmm. a long time. Um, Ricky Supan and myself out of Chattanooga. There was a guy named Zach Hubbard that was from Tuscaloosa. Jeff Bransford actually was taping before we were. He was from Atlanta. He has, like, Matt... He, he gave me some masters of the cave show from 90. Um, so there was a few, we almost, we kind of all knew each other. I'm sure I'm leaving some people out. There was a guy named Forrest Owens from Memphis and his buddy, Mitch. Um, there was a guy named, uh, one of Bransford's friends named Michael Nickel, who would tape some, but, um, you know, we would see each other here and there, but there'd be a lot of times when it was, me and my buddy Ricky would be the only tapers there, and these were like bars sometimes. And so you're uh, pretty creative in your mic placement, right? Yeah, I mean, we tried to tried to stay out of people's way because, I mean, some of the looks we would get when we'd walk in there with some microphones, like these people had never seen any. Like they didn't know what we were doing. Like, I'm talking like you'd see some sorority girl out with her boyfriend to come see a band that night. And they would look at us like we were from Mars. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no one ever like tried to beat us up, but there was definitely some, some like, what What are y'all doing? What's going on here? So it wasn't always like high fives and, you know, rainbows. There was some intense stuff on there too. You mean you, when you walked in, you didn't find like three people to stand in front of your mics and stand underneath them and did not talk the whole time? Oh, no. Oh, no. There was beer, <laughs> beer bottles being broken religiously. Um, what, uh, you know, when you guys started going to shows and you became kind of a known quantity around the band, what was that like getting to know the crew and eventually the band around that time? Oh, it was cool. You know, they, uh, Everyone was always really nice to us. I remember even in Huntsville 96 that we had to basically beg and plead for the security to let us bring our mics in. Oh, man. And, and uh, I was like, man, I swear that the band is cool with this. If you can just go get someone, a representative from them to come talk to us, we will we will work this out. And, and they did. But still, you know, it was still still a thing even, even then. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
every now and then, but everybody was always real nice to us. There's actually, you know, a little bit in 91 where they tried to kind of shut down taping for a little bit. I, when, hmm. when the first the first record on Capricorn was coming out, oh, yeah. and there was a few shows where we had to either sneak stuff sneak stuff in or we got busted and they made a stop or we couldn't get it in at all. And that was kind of defeating at the time, but it yeah. just made us, us love them more. Yeah, was, there was that, and then was it ninety spring ninety four? Was that the other the other time when I guess Eight Life Grand was coming? Sorry, there's summer maybe ninety four when there's stretch no taping. Yeah, some there's something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. still it's still amazing though if you look back. I mean the the volume of you know of recordings. Um, you know, there may not have been a bunch of you guys, but you all covered a lot of shows. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, it's pretty yeah. impressive. It was very important, very important work that we we felt we were no, doing, and God, we just got so much got so much pleasure out of it, man. I mean, yeah. it's really, really some st- experiences I wouldn't trade for anything. Well, and I know, like you know, Jeff and I, on the receiving end of, you know, well, we you know we we grumble as old men here. Uh, about how easy the kids today have it but um you know the the days of waiting for the for the you know the padded envelopes to come in the mail for the show that happened you know three or four weeks ago (laughs) yeah uh, you know just to hear the new song or you know or whatever and um so that those are all uh that that helped i think uh develop the you know the fan base as it you know as it as it became what it was back then yeah, I remember reading an interview with Dave somewhere, and he said like the first time they really played the West Coast that people were singing their songs, and right. he knew that was because of that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so let uh, let's let's go into um, to this release. Um, the band has has done these archive releases over the last uh, however many years, and. Um, you know, there've been some great, great shows. Um, but I, I absolutely appreciated your perspective. Um, because it, it, uh, it seemed like, you know, you were not only looking for, um, a great show, uh, playing wise, but also maybe one that, that was not, uh, in such good, uh, you know, the quality of the, of the, you know, what had circulated wasn't as good. So, we're talking about September twenty eighth, nineteen ninety five, uh, in Knoxville, and this is the uh, the new archive release from the band. And Sam, you picked it out, right? I mean, did, how did that process go? Did they? Did you say, "Please let me pick one out," or did they approach you, or what was that? Well, they had a they had, Horace. I don't know if you guys know Horace more, but he was doing those for a while, mm-hmm. and he moved on, and. Uh, and it was actually a recording I'd asked him about before, before he had he left. And uh, I basically just talked to Brown Cat folks and said, do you, "What do you think about me picking the next release?" And they they were open to it. They said, "Well, let's let's just talk to the band and make sure that uh, you know they approve it. Tell us what you want." And I had a short list, and that was the first one on the list. September twenty eighth, nineteen ninety five, Knoxville. The releases so far, I think, have been fantastic, especially on yeah. the archive, like the the multi track archive releases. Like they there haven't been any misses, but um, but most of them have have had good. Uh, you know, there have been quality 
recordings circulating. I mean, you mentioned the Huntsville 96 show and um, the, the Colorado Springs 98 and uh, the Carbondale show. I mean, there were good, solid audience and then some, some instances soundboard tapes and matrixes uh, circulating. Yeah. Um, so it was like, that was the thing that I always wanted. Like, I was never going to, like, be disappointed, but it was like, man, I just want, I want something that is, you know, a diamond that we don't have so far and so that you totally nailed it on that so i appreciate that as a fan oh, cool. for sure well uh, i was there recording that night and um i know there is some cir- there's tapes that circulate on panic stream and it says i think the source says like matrix has soundboard and audience but yeah. there was definitely some issues going on with the pa that night i don't know if it was hardware or literally like the soundboard was crapping out or speakers were blown but there was something off but it didn't affect the band the band's monitoring system they were using in-ears by that point if any if y'all know what that means mm-hmm. if you're people know what that means they use basically he- high quality headphones and have a monitor mixer that sends them exactly what they want to hear into their headphones and uh so they weren't affected by it, but I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, what is this PA about to blow up? What's going on? It's, I don't even want to think, tell you some of the stuff I was thinking was going on. But um, I, uh, So that's always been one that stuck in my head because they were so on fire that night. That whole time that, period, really. That whole tour, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. that my first, uh, my very first show was a Horde '93 show, but my first like see the light show was uh, September seventeenth, '95. So like two weeks before this, and then I saw three nights later, October first in Columbus, and uh, okay. those were the ones that were like, okay, I guess I need to start following this band around. Um, what so was the what's September seventeenth? Is the Red Mile the the second oh, yes. Red Mile show? Yes, I was at that one as well. Those were fun, fun no, shows. For sure. Um, so yeah, um, that was that show, September twenty eighth. Uh, the opener is Mister Fantasy, and it's just balls out from note one, and it's it's just awesome. The, they're playing well. The energy is off the charts. Like they're so excited. It's palpable. It's just it's crackling. And uh, set list is is you know set set lists are relative you know everybody likes what they like and I get that, but there's some just high powered stuff going on, and uh, I just encourage everyone to check it out because it is it's some powerful stuff if you if you're into this band. I wonder you know we talk about openers and closers. It seems like fantasy is such a sort of no brainer opener of just like lighting it on fire to get going, but I don't think that was really. I mean, except for maybe going way back in the, in the you know '80s, like that was one of the maybe the only time they opened a whole show with fantasy. I I believe it. I mean, you know, they by that point they were using set lists too. Mm-hmm. I think they started using set lists in '95, and you know they're all, they definitely have you know they want to craft a nice set list, a good set list that flows and builds and peaks and valleys and makes sense. But that night it just seemed like they were going for the throat. From first song, what um was there? You know, I mean, we've heard some some rumors about the the state of the of the vault. Um, did did you get into that at all, or did you just sort of say this is this is what I want and and 
cross your fingers and hope that it was intact. Yeah, you know, I didn't really like ask for a list of what's available. Mm-hmm. I just gave them some some of my shows that that I that were on my list, and I and I said, hey, this is the one that be my top pick. If that doesn't work, then how about this one? Um, I don't know a lot about the technicalities of the state of of the tapes. Mm-hmm. I, I assume they're in in good hands. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think I, I think I like, you know, that like there are some, you know, runs or or tours where you know some of the, because they're running, I mean, they're running DATs, right, and multi-track DATs. Yeah, uh, they're or, or um, eight. eight, eight, you know, what was the, what was the multi like the. A dat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's like you know, I mean, it's a it's a physical media. Um, yeah. I mean, I know I had plenty of dats that had all kinds of digital noise on them. So yeah, you know, uh, that happens. Yeah, I I don't. I now this is speculation because someone told me this, and I haven't physically seen it, but I believe they have taken most of that stuff and and put it, you know, into digital format like hard drives or I don't know exactly, oh. but it's. I believe it's being kept in uh, the special collections library at University of Georgia. Is something I heard. Now I don't want to speculate and say that's the case. I don't. I haven't seen it or anything, but that's what I've heard. I think I saw on one of the releases. I don't, I don't know if it was this one or the most recent one that it that it mentioned something about uh, you know some collection at the University of Georgia. So okay. I think that's that's promising. It's good to get yeah. a professional. Uh, historian on charge right jeff yeah absolutely i support that <laughs> keep us keep us employed <laughs> um so uh so yeah no so i'm really excited uh the by the time you hear this it'll it'll be out so if if you enjoy listening to high quality recordings of the band please go out and buy it that's a, a, you know i would I would assume that that's the best way to ensure that these continue to get released. Um, and I think you can, if you subscribe, this is a free plug, but if you subscribe to the Nugs monthly subscription, you get access to all that stuff too. So that's another good way to, to support the band if you don't want to, or, you know, support the continued releases. So um, do you, are, are you hopeful that you'll get another opportunity to, to make a recommendation or get, are we going to see Sam's picks in the future? What's the, What's the future uh, of You know, I really don't know. I'm just grateful that this this happened, and yeah. and uh, so anything after this is cool with me. But uh, I don't assume anything, man. It's just well, well put me in the happening. group of 100 percent supportive of it. So if we need to start a, a you know okay. a petition or something, then you know, let me know. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so uh, Jeff, did, did you have anything else before we we got to the tunes? No, I think we should play it. Uh, okay. So um, we got two tracks we're going to play from from this Knoxville show. Um, as Sam mentioned, the the first set opener uh, of Dear Mr. Fantasy is sublime. So definitely check out the whole thing. But um, what we've got here is the second set opener. Let's get down to business, which is always a good uh, a good sign, especially in this era. And then um, in the middle of the second set holding over soul which is um you know this is still in the era where you would occasionally get a, a drumsless show uh and this is one of those and uh the holding and the jam after it is sort of in the 
you know, in the place in the set list where the drums would normally come. So um, it seemed like those shows, when they skipped drums, they would, you know, there would be a, uh, you know, a special jam or, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's space to, to spread your legs a little bit. Uh, and I think this is, this is that part in this show. So, um, so we get to that and then we'll come back and, uh, and talk a little bit, uh, about, um, things that happened after 1995. So, uh, without further ado, here is, uh, a couple tracks from the new, uh, the newest Watch for Panic archive release from the Tennessee Amphitheater in Knoxville, Tennessee, September 28th, 1995. Thank you for having us, you beautiful city here in Knoxville. One more time, like I said, big old thank you, Joan Osborne and the band, for sharing the music with us tonight. This little big chestnut song. Let's get down to business, shall we? It's time we start playing games. Let's get down to business, shall we? Quit with this lame pretense. And tackle this with shackles us all of this present business. Well, why didn't you tell me? Said God in his heart It's caught my own little world I couldn't discern your slow burn You are the fluttering Oh 
All right, two songs from September 28, 1995 at the Tennessee Amphitheater in Knoxville, Tennessee, the second set opener. Let's get down to business, and then the middle of the second set, Holden Oversoul with a jam, and this is like the Holden Oversoul that just won't die. Like, it just, it, it, it slows down in a way where it's like it's going to, you know, where it starts, seems like it's starting to wind down, might go into something else, and then about two or three minutes into the jam, um, it's tracked out on Panic Stream. Uh, and I don't know if it'll be tracked out on the release or if it's just Holden, but man, Mikey just brings it back and just takes it in a totally different direction. And Sam, one of the things we always talk about on, on the pod is engaged JB. Uh, and uh, this is a night where JB is thoroughly engaged on slide because he is just, he's ripping it up. Um, playing behind Mikey, so this is. I'm glad you picked this for a release because this is this is a great show, and hopefully more people will hear it. I I really am glad that that it's going to be available. It is uh, such to me inspired playing, and you know it's just another night to them. But it was just those little things that would push them over the edge. They were at such a high level of performance by that point. They'd been on the road for ten years and just their minimum level of operation was extremely high and just a little excitement. I don't know what it was in the air that night. Something was in the air. It was exciting. It's just so, so ramped up. Is there, you know, all the shows that you've seen over the years and when you were on, you know, on the crew, was there a particular song that you used as sort of like your gauge or where, where the band was on a given night, how they played a particular, particular song a certain way? Um, I can't say there was a specific song that would uh, that I would use to quantify anything. Um, it was more just a, a feeling of of when they would start hitting it, when when it would just start happening, and it could be wondering, or it could be bow legged, or it could be uh, end of the show, whatever. But if something sparked, and they they felt it, and then they would just ride it, you know, that's those are the moments that, that really were exciting to me. That makes sense. On, when you were on the crew, what was, what was the, what was the being at the show experience? Like when you were on the crew, were you still able to enjoy the show or was it just all business all the time? Oh man. I, so, you know, the first two years when Mike was still there, I, I was, I couldn't have been any happier. It was, uh, every day I was up, ready to go. I didn't need an alarm clock, Every, you know, ready to get in there and get to work, make those guitars sound as good as, as they can. Cause it's just very exciting. Um, so those times, I, I mean, I was definitely all business, but I was enjoying the hell out of it. You know, there was, I had to, you know, my purpose was there to make sure that their stuff was perfect. And sometimes it wasn't. And, so I had to adapt and make sure that I could fix whatever needed to be fixing, needed to be fixed. So um, it was never just all business. I mean, that kind of environment with those people uh, lends itself to, to some enjoyment. Although there were times when it was also, I just want to get, get, get this stuff back on the truck and get out of here too. Not gonna lie. Was there ever like a, a worst night? I, I know that there was a uh, there's a, a video of is it it's like late 
It's like Asheville 2000, maybe, or like JB. Look, it was like the only time I ever seen JB just like looked pissed. Like his guitar stopped working, and he was just like making all kinds of signals to the crew. Yeah. Do, do yeah, you, that remember, was a, you remember that? That was a rough one. <laughs> that was pretty rough. Um, yeah, it was. He had a, his speaker cabinet failed that night, and mm. uh, it took me a while to figure out what was going on. So that was pretty rough. But after the show, he was really cool to me, and um, you know, it's the heat of the moment. Oh, I sure, think. yeah, yeah. So he was definitely pissed, but it is what it is. So that was a rough one. I also remember a rough one in Tulsa when one of Mike's amps blew right before the show. Mm. They had to hold the first set for like 30, 40 minutes. Uh, that was pretty, pretty what, rough. What are, you, are you trying to fix it, or are you trying to jimmy something else? together to make it work or you know i'm trying to figure out exactly what the issue is is it is it a tube is it a fuse is the cable bad well let me you know just swapping stuff out and finally finally figuring it out but it will you know it literally happened five minutes before they're about to go on stage Mm -hmm. i blame the power there at 30 power in tulsa um Okay, so let's. Uh, I want to just like before we move on from Knoxville, the one thing that stood out to me about that Holden Oversoul was I think Jeff and I would probably agree that it is one of our favorite songs and, and certainly a vehicle for great um, improv- improvisation on part of the band. But it really seemed like it was a different kind of uh, jam, so to speak, than, than what they traditionally, how they would t- traditionally take Holden. So it was just really cool to hear i don't know if it was just because it was more um maybe that jam got more developed in like 96 and so this was a little before that and so they were just doing different things with it but um it was it was cool to hear a different uh, approach i thought i i think you're right i think that you know a little bit later on there the jam in holden was definitely uh there was a starting place with dave doing this baseline that I'm talking later on after this, but that night Dave Dave kind of locked into this chord change thing that got really he just and he wouldn't let off of it and it was so like melodic and it almost reminded me of the diner changes a little bit and uh, almost even at one point thought they might try to go back into diner but mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if it was the same I doubt it was the same key but it was really like inviting for like Jojo and Mike to try to get back in there and do something with it. I know you didn't want to get too technical, but uh, just for the sake of, you know, having you on here, um, can you, can you get into like Mikey's setup or I know that there's, there's some, like they had like a diagram that, that circulated, you know, way back when, but um, yeah, anything that was like super unique to him, you know what I mean? That was, you know, that, that sort of contributed to his sound or, Anything like that that you that you could yeah down for um, us? it it was a pretty straightforward setup but and I don't know if this is going to make sense to most people that don't play with guitar amps or you know but he had he used his obviously if you're listening to this show then you know how much he used the volume pedal and he kept his volume pedal in the effects loop of his amp which I, I'm going to try to explain what that means. So basically, he had a master volume over his amplifier with his foot. And 
those swells and the you know leading leaning on and pulling off of the volume pedal uh he used it like most people don't use it most people use it on the front end as sort of a maybe a way to make it sound like pedal steel or kind of you know hit a note and then fade into it or fade out mm-hmm. but he used it as just like a master volume and he was he was literally working that thing non-stop so that is part of what gave him such a unique uh, sound and he also kept a delay on the whole time he had a delay pedal that that he left on so it kind of like thickened up his sound just made it more full so it wasn't the only time you'd hear it is like he got way up on the neck and like hit one note like pulled off you might hear the trails after it but I, you know his his whole thing was that his fingers, man. I've never heard him play with that that intensity, sustain sustain that intensity that time. He was just unreal. And then, like the, his, he, he used what Soldano heads and yes, he had a Soldano SLO 100, and then that fed a uh, Mesa Boogie 212 vertical cabinet. Uh, when I got there, he was using these EV speakers electro voice speakers ev12 lm and he had another one of those he had he used two of those basically two heads and two cabinets but one was the master and it controlled the other head if that makes i I know most people won't understand that or maybe they will but uh that's basically trying to explain it in a very uh general way it aren't like uh Aren't the in the Soldano and the I mean isn't that like one of the, like the the most like obnoxious and rowdy amps you can use or that I felt like somebody told me that once. I mean they're they're mostly using metal heavy yeah. metal. <laughs> like the guy from Rat Warren D Martini uses Soldano. I think uh, Mick Mars from Motley Crue uses them. But he told me that Chan Kinchla from Blues Traveler told him about those amps. Huh. That's why. That's why he got them. Uh, well, Chan Kinto looks like a metal guitarist, so that makes sense. <laughs> I think Chan used Saldano back then, but yeah, the lead channel on a Saldano SLO 100 is pretty, pretty balls out. It's, it's, uh, it's metal, definitely metal. And some of his playing, I think, definitely is more Tony Iommi, some of the early metal stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then his guitar was like a, wasn't it a Telecaster, but it was like kind of a Stratocaster. What was the story yeah. with that? So he bought the first one. It's, it was called a Fender Telecaster Plus Deluxe. And they actually made that model for a few years. Uh, the Plus Deluxe has a tremolo on it like a Strat. So it means you can you can take the strings and bend them at the bridge. Um, and it had certain hardware on it that was like a Strat, and it also had pickups though that were unique. That would almost be like on a Les Paul, like a much fatter, heavier, thicker sounding pickup. And he always kept it on the humbucker pickup in the bridge position, which is the one that the, the biggest output uh, pickup closest to the back by the bridge. Um, again, I hope this makes sense. Oh, it's Probably awesome. Um, and he always kept it on that pickup for when he played live. Um, 
and he got he got the first one off the shelf at this place called Rhythm City in Atlanta in 1991, I think. And then uh, a few years later, I think in the mid 90s, he asked he couldn't buy him anymore, so he asked Fender if they could could uh, make him a couple. Of they did. So the first one uh, has a finish called Firestorm Red, and it's got a much more articulate like finish than the, the other two that they made them later. Because I think the guy that originally did that finish left been between 1991 and mid 90s when he asked him to make it. And then you weren't around for sit. I mean, you weren't uh, working with the crew for sit and ski, but did you? Did you know what he did? He do anything differently for that tour to to kind of have a, a dialed? I know he didn't. You know, he played electric, but to have sort of a dial back sound. Um, I know that he used this Godin guitar, G O D I N. I just pictures of him with it. He used that some. I still think he plugged it into his amp. But from what I heard, um, he ended up just basically using his normal setup after the first few shows. I even heard. I think Gary Vereen told me that uh, that he ended up calling that tour Acoustic My Ass Tour. <laughs> Gary did or Mikey did? Gary told me Mike <laughs> Mike called it that nice. uh, at some point, which I think is funny. Yeah. Okay, so, so you joined the band in the summer of 2000, um, and we're... And I want to talk about the time in between, but then when when did you stop? When did you when was your last show? My last gig was um, working was New Year's, going from '06 into '07, okay. and I stuck stuck around for a, a while after that, just transitioning over to uh, Eric Fredo, who was Jimmy's tech, and and came JB's tech as well. And I was there for a few more months, just just making the transition. Um. Were there were there moments between the summer of, of two thousand and I guess the summer of o two um, that stick out to your mind? I mean, I guess besides the Asheville show and the Tulsa show, I would guess more in for good memories. You know, things that were sure. special or the, really the whole seriously the the fall tour two thousand is my favorite tour ever. Uh, that is just they're just on fire, man. I mean, it's uh, it just was very. It was just fun. You know, I was just in a really good place. The band was in a good place. They actually had brought a new sound company on and a new sound man on mm-hmm. and new lighting. And they sort of were going and, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, I don't, I don't know the right words to use, trying to unlimit themselves as far as their production goes. And man, the sound guy they brought in, was, his name was Andy Meyer. And he mm-hmm. was unbelievable. And, you listen to some of those recordings, audience recordings from fall 2000. Some of them sound like sound. Yeah. So good. Uh, but there's that whole tour was, was really fun. I remember uh, new Orleans. Sure. Those nights were just off the charts. There's a show from you. I think it's Eugene, the Holt center, H U L T center. That show is really great. That's, that's a good one. And you'd be hard pressed to find a show that just wasn't really enjoyable to listen to from that tour but Carbondale was great and I'm glad they released that um, I like Champaign Illinois the night before that it's really good too 
Murray, Kentucky had like the magic bus thing. That was really cool. Right. I remember Kahunaville in like July of 01. That show was great. Some really cool stuff going on there. The Oak, the whole Oak Mountain 01. They were they were really killing it. Those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a show last one Syracuse. I so November. I don't know the date. F, November something 2001 Syracuse Landmark Theater. That show. Listen to that show. You. Uh, okay. They're really having a great time tonight. Yeah, I know that. That's good because I know that there's, you know, 01 wasn't probably as consistent as 2000, you know, as far as good shows. So that's that's good to have a yeah. tip from you. Um, was, I mean, this, the Halloween 2000 shows, I think, for those of us in the audience, were, um, you know, sort of legendary. And I think I'll, I'll, I can always bring myself back to, the, to those moments. Uh, did, w- when did you realize that that was what it was? You know, I mean, like, was it like the Sweet Leaf opener on <laughs> the first night or, you know, I mean, like, did, did the band have a certain, a different sort of a, was it, I don't yeah. know, you know what I mean? Like, was there something that stuck out? I'm telling you that time period was so exciting. There was change going on. There was just new people around. It was different. Uh, you know, they had a sense of like, of things were, uh, exciting to them i don't know if i don't want to keep saying that but it really was and you know so they get to new orleans like their stomping grounds for three nights of halloween they're ready you know they're ready to go for it yeah it's it's again it's always interesting you're the first you know member of the band and a first you know member of the crew that's been on so it's uh, it's always you know you you're 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 running down shows like we do um and mentioning yeah. a lot of, mentioning a lot of the same shows that we've talked about and played especially champagne and carbondale from, from yeah um you know one of the things that you know when you after mike has passed and you know you're, you're you stay in the band and you're working with a new guitar player and still working with jb for the rest of O two and then into O three and then of course the 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 hiatus of O four, like what what is that era of the band like? I mean, can can you kind of take us on the inside a little bit and talk about that transition and 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 just sort of you know what 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 changed in terms of the band's process um, during that time? Well, it was it was difficult for everyone. Um, uh, it. Uh, I'll say they spent a lot more time in the rehearsal room than they had been. Um, George was trying to get, trying to get his place and and figure out things. And uh, it was it was uh, it was kind of crazy. Um, I don't I don't really know what to say. Uh, everyone did the best they could. Um, it was really. A situation that there's really no blueprint for. Um, I think George George was in a, a place, an impossible situation in a lot of ways. Uh, he handled it pretty well. Uh, I know that that must have been extremely hard for him. Um, and I know that he had a lot of people telling him, oh, you should do this, or you should play like this or wait, do it like that, but don't do this. And that's just, it was rough, man. Um, 
but they were still good moments and good times. And uh, I know Mikey had had expressed to to whoever to other people in the band that he didn't want things to stop. He didn't want you know things to to stop because he wasn't there anymore, which is which is admirable. Um, but it's it was it was it was different. Um, God bless, man. They they were soldiers, you know. They're, they just kept doing what they had to do. That's all I can say. I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but I mean, do do you get the sense that maybe it might have been better to to take a break after that and then you know regroup as a, as opposed to trying to figure it out on the fly? Well. I mean that's not my place to say. I mean, uh, they they did what they needed to do. Um, I mean, every I, I have I have my own opinions on it. And I I just you know those are my opinions, and I, I would just prefer to keep you know keep that to myself somewhat. But but I can't fault anyone. They they uh, they everyone did the best they could. Let's talk about you know happier times. Um, well, did did you get? I, I was always under the impression that um, that the crew got to like the last show of the tour. They got to contribute to the set list. Is that was that a true um, rumor, or to or get to pick a song or something for the last show of the tour, or is that just a is that a? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I know that that's probably happened, but I don't think it was like a a thing i think it just may have like somebody may have written something on the wall or something and been like come on play this tonight or something uh now that could be different you know since i've since i'm not there anymore that that definitely could have that i just don't know about it did you did you ever get to 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 add a song um, to the set list Bef- before you were on stage I no, guess. not before not before I, I started playing with them no so so then let's your first your first time stepping on stage was uh fiddler's green right in in august of 02 um which is like a, a week after after mike yeah. pass um what i mean can you like i'm at, i'm sure you remember i mean can you can you put into words what that experience was like for you um i mean it was it was intense very heavy um, yeah. you know, the first shows that Mike was no longer with us. Um, yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you the story of how I ended up playing was, uh, there was two nights and at the first night at set break, Jojo and their manager, Sam Lanier came up to me and said, Hey, do you want to play a few songs tomorrow night? And I was like, what really? And, uh, he said, no, not once. And and then Jojo said that that was Mike's wish for that to happen. So I was like, well, of course, man, I, oh, I would man. love to do that. Um, and then I think during drums, JB and I kind of talked about what songs we play the next night. That's that's how that happened. And so then they go through the whole all of '03, and then and then '04 is a break, and then most of '05. And you're still in the crew, right? This yes. whole time. Um, and so then November of 05 in Denver, you, you come out again. What, how, what was the impetus for that? Or was it, 
you know. Uh, the night, so I think they did four nights, and on the third night, uh, I think it's either drums or set break or some point. JB came up and asked me if I wanted to play uh, the tomorrow night. And I was like, heck yeah, man, let's let's do it. And uh, <laughs> I think I suggested, I think I suggested all those songs. Um, I don't think I suggested Chili, but I definitely suggested A of D and Gimme and D of D. And so yeah, that was I remember that. That was pretty awesome. That was that was felt really good. That was everyone was super pumped after that. That was like really cool. So that was the last show of the tour, so that's pretty cool. And so then is that did you did you get a sense that like maybe this might start happening? I thought more on the reg at that point. Or? I didn't really know what to think because it was, you know, the, we'd gone through like the whole year, and then it happened. So I was like, "Huh, I, that was really cool, man." I, I didn't get a sense of anything other than like, uh, "Wow, that was really, really cool." Um, but then uh, I think Dave called me for New Year's that year. I played with him one day. Yeah, five. It was the encore. The encore. Okay, yeah. Five, so yeah. he called me before those shows so and, right after and that. talked about yeah. me playing during that too. Yeah, that was unfa- I was that was fantastic. That was an impossible gimme fishwater port song encore. True. Yeah. And so then, and then the spring you play you play at Raleigh, and then in the summer, in the summer it, it then you know it's like every every couple three shows you come out. And um, so you, you kind of get into a groove at that point, like it's, and I guess and was Keen Keen was out on on tour in the summer yeah. too. Was yeah, that, he was out okay. there, and that was just sort of to, to to add a little more, you know, sort of help out a little bit. Right, he was had a steel uh, pedal steel out there and stuff, and regular guitar too. Through that through that summer, and then starting August first of two thousand six. Uh, two nights in at the palace in louisville um george mcconnell had been with the band all up until then and then you know i guess that on that day was no longer with the band um without going into any sport event whatever you feel like saying but how was the what was your experience like on that day i guess august 1st in louisville um well early that morning jb called me and said hey uh george is is no longer with us and i said well do you want me to set my my rig up and he said yeah i would love that so that's how that started going actually george had called me the night before and said hey i'm leaving tomorrow i just want to give you a heads up and was a super gentleman and nice guy about everything Mm -hmm. very very cool and uh yeah so the first set first night i didn't play and then the second set, I played, and then I stayed out there for basically the rest of the tour. Um, and that, that was a fabulous experience. That was really fun. Um, I really think that that uh, it was. Everyone started really having a good time. It was. I don't know if it was relief is the right word. Probably not the right word, but it was. It was people were having fun. I think. I think. It was a celebration of, of panic for the rest of that tour. Did, did you have um, like favorite song that you enjoyed playing during that period with the band? Um, I really love playing Impossible Song. 
<laughs> I really love playing like B of D. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean a lot of them really. Yeah. Was there like a was there like a holy shit moment like during that period where you were like you know I'm on stage playing driving song or impossible song or whatever like this is really happening after you know 11 years ago you were seeing them at, at some little bar in yeah. Tuscaloosa um there was never like a moment where I was just like you know like that but I definitely had moments of uh of like man this is really really cool and and we're really playing well right now this is this is great I remember um the, the one that sticks out to me the most is, is the Heaven Encore from Portsmouth first night. I think it's the first night. Um, it was really just easy and good, and we were all connecting and smiling, and it just, like, it was just so cool. And, and, I, and I really liked that moment. If I had to boil it down to one moment, I just felt like everyone was firing. We were all playing together very well. Um during that time did you were you involved in in the crafting of the set list every night or yeah how, um, that, how was that process so in louisville i think uh we all kind of made the set lists the band and myself and uh and then i remember the next i think the next show was uh merryweather and mm-hmm. I just went, I just made a set list. I was like, and just to see what they say. And they came and looked at it and went, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. So pretty much no every, <laughs> every, the rest of those shows, I would make the list and then they'd come in and look at it. And sometimes they would want to change stuff. Uh, actually on August 10th, which was the anniversary of uh, Mike's passing, and we were playing in, I think, Cleveland, Ohio, J- JB's hometown. He uh, he wanted to help make the list. Like, he and I made it together because it was his hometown. And that was really experience to, to do that. So you pretty much, you, you, like, wrote them all up for the most part, that whole run after Louisville? Pretty much. Uh, That's after, awesome. After, you know, I would just, yeah. I mean, I would try. And then, uh, you know, Dave would, Dave would be the most interested in looking at it when he got there. And say, well, you should flip this because of this, or maybe we should do this. Or I remember, and I tried, like we played Stop Going Louisville, and I tried to get it in there again, like Chicago. And he's like, Come on, man! I don't want to play Stop Going. Again. <laughs> Why not? But you know, yeah. So, yeah. You talked about you know when the first time you played, or I guess the second time in Denver, about wanting to play. Um, B of D and was it A of D too? Mm. So like, and then seeing like the stuff that you've done after without formation and, and same whole band, like it seems like, like Mikey's instrumentals are pretty significant influence on, on your music. Um, can you talk a little bit about that or do you have favorites or, or just, you know, do you mean like songs that, that we still play of his or like my music that is influenced by him? Well, I mean that too. I guess specifically, like the just the instrumentals, like you know, A of D, B of okay. D, Galleon. You know, yeah, just specifically the instrumentals. Yeah, I just love, man, I just love those songs so much. I've never heard anyone write songs like that, and uh, I just really, really enjoy playing those songs. And I, I think when we play them, it's kind of a 
way to connect with his spirit with for other people and me and uh, just really think that's cool I, I love hearing those songs love playing those songs I think it's awesome that you still do that so we all appreciate that for sure cool. um, alright so um, Jeff before do you got anything before we get into the music I don't mean to let's play some music okay cool <laughs> um, alright so you, you picked out some stuff from uh, the August 06 um, run that we're gonna we're gonna play now so there's something from um, from Louisville second night of Louisville and then uh, um, did you did you have a favorite uh, like venue either I guess to play in just as far as experience um, from the stage is the palace is that one that sticks out or are there others man they they all stick out honestly like yeah. I could I can put myself in those places I can I can kind of picture each each venue or each 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 night if I really want to like the Portsmouth man we had so much fun in Portsmouth I remember like during the Big Willie just I was like I can't wait till the lighters get thrown this is gonna be so great. <laughs> you know and uh, Chicago was beautiful theater um, yeah. Merryweather I mean geez that place is right. legendary man you know I was thinking mm-hmm. about Dead. Jerry stood right here. And that was really cool. Uh, they were all really special. Too. Okay, so we got something from the second night of Louisville, and then something from uh, the third night of Chicago. So um, let's play that, and uh, I want to hear a little bit of your opinions on some of that stuff, and then I, I definitely want to get into what you're what you got going on right now. So um, again, Sam Holtz joining us here at the blues tape and certainly appreciate his time. Um, And so right now we'll head to the palace theater in Louisville, Kentucky on August 2nd, 2006.
Well, Daddy says things so Mama won't worry. If I were him, I'd do the same for you. And I know you're in a hurry. A couple more things you gotta do. At church on Sunday Feeling like you've just been shot And things get so complicated The less you want, the more you got Living on 
eyes are glassy Oh, it be the city down deep to the bottom of a long glass night Leaders not your body
right, so you just heard two selections from uh, when Sam Holt was the lead guitarist for Widespread Panic in August 2006, uh, the first selection from August 2nd, 2006, the beautiful Palace Theater in Louisville, Kentucky, Postcard, and then the last show that he serves as the lead guitarist for Panic, August 13th, 2006, from the Chicago Theater in Chicago, Illinois, Tennessee Before Daylight, into Chilly Water, the only Tennessee Before day- Daylight. And I think this is... Both these selections are great, but again, I, we talked about it during the segment. So exciting for Sam to get a chance to play his original songs with the band that he works for. Um, all his, I mean, his stories about working with JB to put together the set list and all of that. Um, just really great and really shows how much respect the band had for him beyond just being a guitar tech and beyond just being a hired gun. So kudos to them. And again, it could, couldn't have been more of a thrill to, to hear Tans, uh, Sam. Uh, tell those stories yeah no for sure I, I thought what was really cool and i and i if you haven't done it already i highly recommend um going back and looking at the set list for that run like the, you know the, those last couple weeks um i mean because he just nailed them <laughs> i mean they're so good and like yeah, you know. they're like he's 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 representing the taper all of the tapers and the fans. Like, yeah, <laughs> and I mean it was like you know there weren't out you know they weren't ridiculous they were totally in line with stand you know with a regular set list but he just the creation and the 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 way that he put them together the craft though you know the craft that he used just awesome great openers great you know placement of instrumentals and jams and just just fantastic. So I know we said that we were going to do it all in one episode, but like we said at the outset, we decided to split it up. So we're going to depart for this week and we'll come back in a couple of weeks with, with uh, part two of our interview with Sam Holt and some more stories from the road and behind the scenes with widespread panic. So I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Be sure that you go out and buy the archival release of September 28th, 1995 from the Tennessee Amphitheater in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's an awesome show, and it far outpaces the audience tape that he, that Sam Holt made way back yeah. then. And uh, so, make sure you make make sure you check that out. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Um, send us an email. Um, always happy to hear comments. Always happy to hear recommendations for show ideas and and, and whatnot, or things maybe we've passed up and um, or missed over the years. I got to say, I missed two thousand six, and uh, so it was, it was a real thrill to listen to this stuff for the first time. And um, really appreciate what Sam did here in this uh, two week span where he was in the band. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, definitely if you're headed down to Nashville um, for the, for the panic shows, um, try to get out to uh, Sam's show afterwards. I think those will be a good time. I'm going to try to get to the Friday night show. I think if I can make it work Um, and uh, I've got tickets for, for the panic show on Saturday. Appreciate everybody joining us. Did you, Jeff, did you get a chance to listen to last week's episode? Uh, yes, I did. Did it's, you? That's a fun show. Wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it, it sounded was- like they, the, 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 I was listening to it at work and it stepped out and I came back in the middle of early and I was like, man, is the tape running fast? Cause they were, <laughs> that was some straight up fast paced, John Popper, Chan Kinch. Yeah, I, I feel like when when Popper and Chan come out, that they just die, the the uh, the tempo just dials up a couple beats for sure. 
but um, no, it was a fun show, and like surprisingly, like I thought that the tape didn't sound awful. I was expecting Ooh, it to be awful. way worse than it was. So, ten fifteen ninety six is still the gold standard for awful sounding tapes. Yeah, that that one is much better. So, um, all right. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to listen to it. But um, and if you haven't, go back and check out some of uh some of our earlier episodes. We got lots of them, and um, there's some good stuff back there. So, um. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, bluestape.com. And uh, we'll talk to everybody next week. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com. Fine.